Welcome to EdPod, connecting educational research and classroom teaching with Drs. Eric Clarabal and Darren Battaglia. Episode 7, Academic Language. It's not just for vocabulary anymore. Hello, Eric. Hi, Darren. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to talk about back to uh, beyond vocabulary. That's right. You know, I'm excited about tonight's podcast because vocabulary is one of one of my favorite areas of literacy, and um, and I'm always fascinated by by words. And I remember when I was, you know, when I was growing up, elementary and middle school. I I just have this penchant for 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 words and words and words and literally I was a walking dictionary because I used to carry this huge thick dictionary in my backpack so like walking around the campus with that dictionary because I was just so interested and um engrossed with the etymology of the words and just basic I mean passionate about words in general and this so, is why i no longer play words with friends with you why i've <laughs> given that up you've used me as an example embarrassed me in front of live studio audiences <laughs> and this That's is right. beyond vocabulary uh, the it article is. is called exploring cross-disciplinary academic language proficiency and its association with reading comprehension it's by pa- paola uccelli um and others, and it was published in the Reading Research Quarterly in 2015. That's right. What is interesting about this article is that they're trying to define academic language beyond vocabulary. In the classroom or in the current practice, we always think about academic language as equivalent to vocabulary. But what's interesting about this article is that they're proposing and trying to operationalize that academic language proficiency is not just vocabulary. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, it's, I think this is really interesting. And I think when we get to talking talking toward the end here about some of uh, the takeaways from this article, that's something I'd like to get back to. Uh, they're actually talking about not just this construct, though. They're talking about... Um, setting up a uh, validating a new instrument to measure academic uh, language is that right mm-hmm. it's, it's it's correct um, so what why don't you go through what the article um, kind of give a summary of the article okay let me just give you a brief summary of what this research is all about so the this the objective of this study is to explore more on the inclusive operationalization of an academic language proficiency construct. And they call this as the core academic language skills or C-A-L-S or CALS, they refer that. So to them, CALS refers to a constellation of high utility language skills to support reading comprehension across content areas. So. This is still relevant to the study of disciplinary literacy. 
because they talk about science, they talk about history and, and math, and which is, you know, which is really interesting because as we know, reading comprehension in disciplinary uh, areas could be challenging for many students in upper elementary and middle school and high school, right? Going back to this research, so they use that CALS instrument to, to, uh, to theoretically ground and, and prove the psychometric robustness of, of this tool. So they first examined the variability in students' CALS by grade, English proficiency designation, and socioeconomic status. And then they examined the contribution of, of this instrument to reading comprehension using academic vocabulary knowledge, word reading fluency, and sociodemographic factors as covariates. And um, they use four different assessments, the standardized reading comprehension assessment, the Gates-McGinnity reading test, and then an academic vocabulary test, which is a research researcher-made test, and then the, the word reading fluency test, or the test of silent word reading fluency. So these four tests were a way of cross-validating the instrument that they created. That's correct. And then they analyzed this using the hierarchical, hierarchical multiple regression analysis. Um, so it's, it's just a highfalutin statistical tool. But, but in other words, this is just to, to show that, that these different constructs are independent predictor of reading comprehension. And they found out that, that these different components of the core academic language skills are unique in its own content. And that's what we're going to talk about and, and, and how we're going to talk about how these specific elements of CALS are important in, in the current practice of teaching disciplinary literacy. So when I read this article, I came up with a couple of things. I mean, one, one is I mean, they just set out essentially to, to validate a new instrument. They had mm -hmm. But I mean, in that they defined a, they had, when they developed their instrument, they had to define the construct, right? right. Which was academic language. And as we mentioned in the beginning, academic language, we almost always think of when we're trying to end the classroom is, okay, we got to teach these kids academic language, which just means let's get out the academic word list and, and find new ways that we can teach vocabulary. But they, they found ways to be a little bit more uh, explicit in defining what is academic language. Mm -hmm. And that leads to um, better ways to diagnose what students need. Um, right in that language of the classroom and how we can help them. Correct. They have, yeah, and they, they developed then from that and from the results, this, what I would call a, a maybe a framework, a theoretical framework um, of academic language. Mm -hmm. they have a, it's a really nice visual. All of it has to do with um, these core academic language skills. Each one is connected to recognizing academic register. Uh -huh. And there's about, six different dimensions those dimensions are analyzing or, or analytic organizing analytic text connecting ideas logically tracking participants and themes interpreting writers opinions understanding metalinguistic meta vocabulary and unpacking dense information those are all things that students need to be able to do and that's the definition of academic language or, or the language of the classroom and i think 
one of the important ideas that this research is trying to impart is that uh, when we teach reading comprehension, it is really just beyond inferencing and and the semantic aspects of understanding text. So there are different layers of of language components that students need to understand and put them all together, sort of like synthesizing all these sub-skills for them to fully understand a complicated text such as, you know, historical documents, primary or secondary uh, source, or even when they're reading a science textbook, right? So, so why don't, okay, why don't we talk about each individual academic register and let's start with unpacking dense information this is very close to my heart because this is what i did when i you know when i was when we were doing our doctorate and and i focused more on morphological awareness morphology is central to the unpacking of dense information because a lot of the the words in in this in science in in history and math are a field with morphological structures. What do I mean by morphological structures? It's just, you know, the importance of, of Greek and Latin roots, the prefixes and suffixes. Um, so, so if kids have that knowledge of morphology and, 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 and then they embed that in, in terms of uh, using context clues, so then it would be easier for them to understand a sentence. For example, the word, let's say the word undoubtedly, right? It's it's a complex word because it has prefix and suffixes, and then you look at the you look at the base word. So if, if the child has that awareness and then situate that word within the context of the sentence, that would help him understand, you know the whole meaning of that sentence. And what happens is that when the kids are reading complex texts, there's a lot of morphologically complex words scattered around that paragraph. So so that one academic register that they need to do is to unpack it and start processing the morphological structure. Another element of this core academic language skills is tracking participants and themes. And one of the striking feature of, of this element is the use of anaphora. Anaphora or anaphoras are words or phrases appearing in a text that refer to a prior participant or idea. And this is pretty common in, in, in many nonfiction and informational texts. Uh, for example, I'm just gonna quote this sentence that they presented in the article. And this text was lifted from a science book. And it says, quote, the evaporation of water occurs due to rising temperatures, period. This process, unquote. So the anaphor in this case is the words, this process. So if the students are tracking down their understanding and when they read these two first two sentence first two words in the next sentence this process they know what the author is talking about unfortunately many students especially those who are struggling readers and 
English language learners or students whose reading is not fully developed yet, sometimes it's it's hard for them to understand and 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 look at what what these words refer to from the previous sentences. And you know, as I was talking about this the other day when we were discussing this article off the air, uh, there is this one lesson that I taught a week ago in social studies and and, and in this document, um, the anaphora was these authors. And and I asked my students, do you understand what the author is, who, who the author is talking about in this case? And so so they they were able to follow it up and, and, and they said yes. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that they they follow, they track down the author's use of anaphora, and, and that contributed to their understanding of, of the text. And do you think if, if it was just stopping and, and checking, checking in with them was the important piece of that? Or do you think that there's a piece that needs to be explicitly taught? I, I think they, they need to be aware that, that when, uh, when this anaphors come up, they need to start they need to stop and think, okay, just to check my understanding, do I know who, do I know what this is referring to? There needs to be that metacognitive piece where they need to be That's able to right. ask themselves That's and check right. for their own understanding. That's right. But because, you know, for a mature reader, you don't really need to stop. It's, you know, it's like automatic to you and it's fast and you process it right away. But for developing readers, we need to explicitly teach them to stop and think about, you know, what these anaphors are for. So let me go back to organizing analytical text. The authors specifically mention um, increasing skills in argumentative text organization. They note that researchers have found that narrative text organization knowledge is formed by about fourth grade, but the knowledge of expository text organization doesn't or continues to grow. And that goes in line with Common Core standards and sort of those um, uh, those NAEP, the NAEP framework, uh-huh. which suggests that the balance between narrative and informational text increases as students get older. In math, as I as I think about it, you know the the ways that students need to be able to defend um, their claims in math be able need to be able to say why an answer is correct, how they got there, language. Um, sentence frames are, are a really important piece of that. And that's something that as teachers, we need to be able to give them, teach them how to use, make them available, whether it's on the wall, uh, in little cards on their desk. It needs to be a resource that's available to them until they no longer need it or until they, they don't um, want to use them. Right. In the same manner, when, we, when, when students are reading history or historical texts, for example, the structural argumentative texts involve the thesis, arguments, and then examples and conclusion. And I think that's a, that's a pretty stable structure that you can see when students are reading historical texts. And, and that leads to the next conversation of connecting ideas logically because i think you know this logical connection to the text organization are pretty intricate and what do we mean by this connecting ideas logically yeah this has to do with a lot of the those connective words that's right yeah and you know what for example the word although however 
as a consequence, in, in, in addition to. These are words that are markers of, of, of the author's change of, 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 of leaning or, 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 or thought processes. Yeah, so I didn't really know this until after reading this article and I began to look it up. But those words, those class of words, I, I guess, are something that are taught in a mm-hmm. lot of schools now, yeah. but they're called connectives. Mm-hmm. And they're uh, contrasted, I guess, with conjunctions. Conjunctions, of course, you know, connect sentences, whereas mm-hmm. connectives just connect words within the sentences. Generally, connectives um, have a, a specific purpose. You know, they add to something. They denote time, cause and effect, or they contrast. I, I think the, I, I think the idea of conjunction is is more of a grammatical concept, right? Yeah, but but because the conjunction but can also be a connective. Oh, okay. So 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 the 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 word connective here is really like a pragmatic idea that like like the, these words connect one argument to another or one thought to another and conjunctions could could really be subsumed under connected well this reminds i don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to take some of the um english learner training that susanna dutro has done over the last you know five or ten years Mm -hmm. but she often talks about bricks and mortar words and mortar Uh words are those that glue that sort of holds everything else together and these right. are one example of some of those mortar words. You know, it's not they're right. high utility, but uh, they're not you know specific. So right. I, I think that's what these are. And when we teach them, we need to you know be very purposeful and choose only a few words to teach at a time. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. that for English learners, it's really necessary that they need to be taught these words, uh, you know, explicitly. For maybe for our other students, it's not necessary it's important but for our english learners it's both important and necessary i think it's it's important to all english learners whether it's a monolingual or or a bilingual students because when they fully understand these connectives as part of the discourse marker they're going to be able to use that when they're when they write their own argumentative essay it will even you know improve their writing and make their writing more sophisticated because they're using these connectives and 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 showing to the reader that okay I'm shifting my ideas now and these are the markers that I'm I using. I think there's also some of these words these connectives that are a little bit more subject specific. I was going through mm-hmm. some and thinking about it as a math teacher which are more important for me. There's some uh-huh. like in contrast, in fact, differs from as a result mm-hmm. of in addition those to me might be more important than other connectives, which could relate more or uh, or be more common in other right. subjects. Right. So that might and, and change I, how I would teach it. If I were to teach, if I especially, I might think very uh, specifically if I want to. If I'm teaching a very uh, certain function in math or in a specific topic, I might choose just a few of those uh, mortar wor- well, not mortar words, but those connectives to teach, knowing the topic that we're on. Absolutely. And I think once the students understand those connecting ideas logically, then they're going to be able to follow the writer's point of view, right? Because if they know that this certain marker, uh, for example, however, then they would be able to understand, oh, so now the author is trying to sort of counter argue the previous 
um, idea that that he posts on that paragraph, and and that's important. And and again, this article mentioned that they're not these different academic registers are not discrete or independent from each other, but they're all overlapping. And one register helps develop another register. Does that make sense to you? That's a great point. And with that, Eric, I will talk to you next time. It's good to talk to you, and I look forward to the next podcast. You can find out more about the show and us at edpod.tv. There you can send us a message, read show notes, and give us suggestions. If you like what you hear, rate us on iTunes. We're on Twitter at RealEdPod. Join our Zotero group for complete citations of all articles mentioned on the show. Our theme music is Time by Drake Stafford. Thank you for listening. Thank you.